Exodus 17, 1-7 All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Hereb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they had tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Well, happy Easter. All right, so I want to begin by asking you guys a simple question, and the question is this. Uh, what were you thinking when you were listening to the story that Elizabeth was just reading? I mean, I realize some of you are thinking that's a weird story for Easter, um, but aside from that, what were you thinking? So here's why I'm asking. I think that oftentimes when we listen to the stories from the Bible, you know, we, we listen to the story and we think to ourselves, all right, you know, okay, I, I kind of get that. Maybe I've heard that before. Maybe that's brand new to me. It was short. I could follow the fact pattern even if my child was squirming next to me and was kind of distracting me in the moment. I can still tell you basically what the story is. But Tom, here's what I can't tell you. What in the world does that story have to do with me? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like, Why? Why are we studying this? So if you've not been with us for the past couple of months, then you've kind of missed this study of the book of Exodus. I just want to tell you one thing that we've learned of all the things that we've learned as we've moved through that book story by story by story by story. One of the things that we've learned, and it's really profound, is that these stories actually have everything to do with me and they have everything to do with you. It's not just stories about Moses and the Israelites, but they're stories about Jesus and me and they're stories about Jesus and you if, and that's an important qualifier, if you will have Jesus if you will receive him on his terms, he freely offers himself to you, all that he is, all that he has, all that he's done, all that he evermore will do. Listen, if you will have Jesus, that story that Elizabeth read is your story. And it's a beautiful story. Just like every other story that you've ever heard, it's a story, however, that happens within a context. And so then, within the big story of the large book of Exodus, what we've seen already by this point in the narrative is that God, through Moses, has led his people out of Egypt and out of slavery to Pharaoh, and he's brought them out into the wilderness. And the wilderness, by definition, is a place where there is very little water. And I'm just going to say it. Here's what you and I as physical human beings need more than anything else other than air. Water. So our physical need list looks something like this. Air, water, food, college football, <laughs> right? And then everything else. That's it. And the pain of physical thirst, we are told, is more intense than the pain of any other kind of deprivation. And so maybe if you're still tracking with me at this point, 
you're thinking, okay, so Tom, you're barely into the message, bud, and you've already lost me for two reasons. Number one, it's baseball, not college football. And, uh, and I'm not even going to address that. I mean, just go to a game that's baseball, go to a college football game, that settles itself. But, but point number two, and this one actually matters, is when I go into my kitchen, Tom, and I turn on my faucet, there's water. And then if I go into the bathroom and I turn the faucet, there's water. And if I go outside, I turn on the hose, water some more. Hey, you know what? I walk out in my backyard, I've got a whole pool full of water. I can go into my kitchen again. I can open the cabinets. I can take out a cup. I can walk over to the refrigerator and I can get a cool glass of water out of the little dispenser dealie. If I'm smart, I put the ice in first. Otherwise, I get splashed. And I can get cubed ice and I can get crushed ice and... I mean, what in the world does this story about these people who are thirsting to death out in a wilderness where there's no water have to do with me? It has everything to do with you, and here's why. Because as human beings, we do not just thirst for water. We thirst for love. We thirst for companionship. We thirst for meaning and purpose. We thirst for wisdom and strength. We thirst for respect and significance. We thirst for somebody at times to just notice us and care. We thirst for justice. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. In the wilderness that is this world, guys, we all thirst. And you know what? Thirst is painful. And here's what we do with our thirst, typically. We do the same thing these guys did in that story, which is what? Turn in anger at God. That's what they do. I think it's what we do. You know, we look at all of the thirst that we have and that other people have and all of the suffering and all of the issues, and we think to ourselves, good grief, how can there even be a God with all of this stuff that's going on in my life and in the lives of other people? How can He even exist? And I think when we begin to think on those paths, we forget at least two things. So thing number one that we forget is that God is not responsible for the wilderness of this world. It's not the way he originally made it. If you go back in the Bible, and I know that that's an issue for some of us, you're like, yeah, you go back in the Bible. But I believe this, like you go back in the Bible and you look at the world that God originally created. It was not a broken world. It was an unbroken world. And so then you ask the question, well, then how did it get broken? I'm just going to answer it for myself, okay? At least in part, because of me. Maybe at least in part because of you. G.K. Chesterton was once asked, what's wrong with the world? He said, I am. That was it. That was the whole answer. And he's right. He's on to something. Listen, we are all of us broken. And we all of us take our brokenness and dysfunction, however much or little it is that we have, and we bring it into our homes and we bring it into our workplaces and we bring it into everywhere else we go, every relationship that we have. We take it with us. What a wonderful gift, huh? So awesome. You're like, no, that's not me. Okay, well then I'll follow you through traffic on the way home and we'll see if it's you, okay? Because I'm not buying it for a second. Not buying it. We deny the existence of God because we're angry, angry at our thirsts in this broken world and overlook the fact that the world He gave us was not broken. And the other thing I think that we forget when we deny the existence of God because of those things is that, look, you know what? If there is no God, then there will be no end to the wilderness of this world. The wilderness of this world, therefore, then, is all that we will ever have, at the end of which there will be nothing. And Solomon is right. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just the same cycle, again and again. 
and again and again. And by the way, there will also be no justice. Oh, that's a stinger, isn't it? Man, that stinks. I mean, think this through with me. If there is no God who stands above us all and who alone can speak authoritatively to the whole of humanity, why? Because we are his creation. And he then says, okay, here's what is right and here's what is wrong. Then there is no right or wrong. There just isn't. If there is no date upon which that God comes to do that which all of us thirst for him to do, which is bring all of the craziness and all of the madness that we experience in our lives and that we look around and see in the mess that we've made of this place called planet Earth to an end, it will not come to an end. And justice isn't coming for me and it's not coming for you either. If there's no God, then all there is is the wilderness of this world. And as wonderful as it can be in moments, you will be forever thirsty. So I think we deny the existence of God because we're angry over the pain of our thirst, but then some of us, I think, too, and we all do this a little bit, deny the existence of God because we fear that if there actually is a God, then there actually is a right and wrong, and then there actually is justice, and that, you know, it might not just be like the crazed dictators that God comes and in the end speaks with because I'm a little dysfunctional, maybe a little more than a little. I've, I've contributed to the problem as much as I've tried to help. And I think that's what makes the rest of this story so interesting. Because what happens in this story is that instead of trusting God, and by the way, the Israelites at this point, absolutely, unequivocally, objectively, without any excuse, should have trusted God even out in the wilderness in the midst of the madness of their thirst. There's no doubt. These guys, these guys had just watched God decimate the nation of Egypt, dominate all of Egypt's gods, but more than that, demonstrate and manifest his power over the whole of the created order in plague after plague after plague after plague in Egypt, including plagues that involved water. He said to Moses, take your staff and strike the waters of the Nile and the waters of life will run red with the emblem of death which is blood itself. He says, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh and tell him I'm about to wipe out all of the crops with hail. Frozen water. He takes them out of Egypt, pins them up against the Red Sea, draws Pharaoh's and his armies out and gives them the most unlikeliest of escape routes. He parts the waters. You hear the word waters? of the Red Sea and they pass through. They get to the other side, the safe side of the Red Sea. They wander into the wilderness for three days. They find no water. They come upon water in the wilderness. They all rush into it because they're thirsty and it's salty. And God miraculously cures it and makes it sweet. Every single day, these guys are waking up and there's this white flaky stuff on the ground named manna. The word manna means literally, what is it? Because they had no idea what it was. They just knew they were supposed to collect it up and eat it. And it was keeping them alive which it did, even on this very day. And yet, nevertheless, on this day, they've had it. Apparently, they've assumed that God has done all of those things to bring them out into the wilderness, even though he's promised to take them to a promised land, and they're not anywhere close to that at this point, to kill them of thirst. And they draw up, really, like formal legal complaint against Moses, God's spokesman. And the reason I say that is that that word quarreling is a new word to this narrative in the Exodus. And it's a legal word. So what are they wanting to do? They're going to charge and try and convict Moses of the negligent homicide or manslaughter, I guess, of two million people. That's how many there are of them. To say nothing of the animals, and they want to execute him by stoning him to death before they then all die of thirst. And what Moses does is he comes to God, understandably, and he says, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this people? You know, like, they're getting ready to stone me. And what does God say? He says, you know what? Let's just wipe these guys out, man. 
I mean, I don't know what else I have to do for these people. They are arrogant. They are insolent. They are ungrateful. I am sick of their whining. I am sick of their complaining. I'm sick of their doubting. I'm sick of all of this stuff. Just get your family together, Moses, and you with your family go to the promised land. We will start a new people out of you and we'll let these guys get what they think is coming against all reason, which is death by thirst. It's not what he does. Because notwithstanding that fact, that they are everything I just said and more, he loves them. And so we read in verse 5, it says, The Lord said to Moses, here's what I want you to do, buddy. I want you to pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, some of these guys who would have been part of an official judicial proceeding. And I want you to take in your hand the staff of judgment and death, with which you did what? You struck the Nile River in Egypt, turning the waters of life into the emblem of death, which is blood. And then God says, go and behold, I, God, will stand before you, Moses, there on the rock at Horeb. Now, why is that so odd? Because it was understood in their culture, it's understood in ours, that the inferior person, no matter the circumstances, no matter the location, is always the one who is said to stand before the superior person. If you stand before a king, even if you're looking straight in the eye, even if you're looking down at the king, okay, here's the deal. You're standing before the king because he's the king. And yet the king here, who is God, says, we're going to reverse this. I'm going to humble myself and stand before you, Moses. And then here's what I want you to do. You shall strike the rock. Now, what does that mean? God's clearly not standing before Moses in a physical body in this moment, but there is Moses, and then there is God, and then there is the rock. You get the idea? And so to strike the rock with the staff of judgment and death, Moses is going to have to effectively cut God in half to get there. He's saying, you will hit me with judgment and death. It will fall on me. And when it passes through me, and your staff hits the rock, okay, water, which is life itself, shall come out of it, and the people will drink and be saved. And you say, well, why would God do this? I mean, God is obviously innocent here. The people are the guilty ones. And that's the reason. That's the answer. Because the people are the guilty ones. Because there is a God, and there is justice, and there is judgment. There's all of those things that when we're honest, we want. Just not for us just not for us. And so God knows that. And he loves his people. And he says, here's the deal. Moses, you're going to hit me with judgment and death. I'm going to take it in their place. I will get what they deserve. And then they will get what they don't deserve, which is life in their case in the form of water. And that's why this story is not just their story, but it's my story and it's your story. If you will have Jesus who freely offers himself to you today, because the Christian gospel is such that God created an unbroken world that for all of our efforts to fight against the brokenness of, and we do that, we've contributed to the brokenness of too. And since there is a God and there is justice and there is judgment, there's all of those things, you know? And yet God loves us. God in the person of Jesus came into this world in a literal physical body and on the cross took what we deserve so that on Easter we could get what we don't deserve. And what is that? Absolute pardon. 100% forgiveness. 
eternal and everlasting life, peace with the creator of the universe, relationship with the creator of the universe. And as we grow in relationship with him, here's what we discover. We discover that he actually is the one who alone can satisfy every thirst of our hearts. It's remarkable. And Easter is the day, man, that says that's legit. The reality is that if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, none of us would have ever heard a word about him. We wouldn't know his name. We certainly wouldn't be here. There wouldn't be church buildings or any of this stuff. No one would be, be lost to history. These guys who went about on the day of his resurrection, left where they were hiding in, in fear and in shame from the authorities who, you know, I mean, they had just put the master to death, so what were they going to do to them? Rush out into the streets of Jerusalem, and they begin to proclaim that this Jesus, who everyone knew was dead, was alive again from the dead on the third day, even as he said that he would be. Those are the ones who wrote the New Testament for us too. Now, why would they do that if it wasn't true? Here's what we know they endured. Persecution. Religiously, socially, economically, physically. They were ostracized from their homes, from their families, from their friends, from their business partners, from their communities, from their synagogues. Everything. Tortured. And most of them died horrific deaths because they would not recant the singular idea that they had actually seen a man. Jesus risen from the dead. Try to get a group of friends to do something like that sometime. Hey guys, I've got a great idea, you know, so here's what I was thinking, you know, this guy died and even though it isn't true, and we, we know that he's not arisen, I mean, he's still dead and we uniquely understand that because I don't know, maybe we stole his body and hid it or something crazy like that. So anyway, what I was thinking is maybe we could concoct this idea, this fraud upon the whole of humanity and here's what it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us everything. Our lives are going to be miserable. We are going to be pariahs, hated, and we're going to suffer torturous deaths. What do you think? Sign-up sheet is in the back. Think about it. He's risen. And since He's risen, His offer of Himself to you is valid and true. Come. And receive the forgiveness in life and the quenching of your thirst that only He can give. So here's the deal. Will you have Him? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that You have um, not forsaken us to our own ways. To our rebellions, You've looked past all of our faithlessness with You. And you have set upon us in love the greatest expression of which we find at the cross of Jesus Christ. His suffering and death, his burial and then his resurrection as the author of life. God himself took up his life again. Lord, let us not be surprised by that. Let us marvel over it with joy. And give us the faith, God, that we need to simply humble ourselves before you. And to say, Lord, as, as hard as I've worked to make this world a better place, there are some things I've done that has not made it a better place. In my brokenness, I have broken things. I have broken people. I've inflicted wounds even upon my own self. And I need your forgiveness. And so, Lord, I trust that Jesus is 
who you say he is, that he is God, and that by his sufferings and by his death, the debt I owe you is paid, and by his resurrection I am assured that by faith in him, simply believing, I am your son or daughter. Give us faith, Lord, by which to pray that prayer to you, that we might know you, and that you might quench our thirst. Do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Happy Easter.